32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week we take a county and dive into an issue relevant to that county and then see where in the world it brings us. This week's county is Kilkenny. And this week's question, has the pandemic unlocked the power of the Shebeen? 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 We want to get that one right, Andrea, because we're going to be saying it a lot. Shebeen. Um, thank you, Patreon people, all of the people who've come on board. Uh, nous sommes appreciate vous. We also love to see uh, our totes out in the wild. Um, it's Bananas was spotted uh, this morning, this very morning in Daddy's in Rialto. So big up to whoever was getting their... Uh, delicious coffees. I thought that was a get in the sea one that was spotted. No, it was in It's Bananas. Oh. So they're, they're hitting the post at the moment. My sister, Michelle, shout out to Scheller, is doing all our uh, packaging and posting. If you sign up to uh, our Patreon, not only do you get a get in the sea or It's Bananas tote, you of course get the Sunday Sooth. I think the most recent Sunday Sooth was my favourite one to date because I, I genuinely needed it myself. And I thought your words of wisdom were very helpful. Speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And the bonus is we don't sing on that episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, for now, let's go to the State of the Nation. Give me the state. Oh my God. Bento bit state of the nation this week. First up, Stephen Donnelly. Right. <laughs> like what the fuck? Sorry for cursing. Is with this dude. So basically there's this group called 221 Plus, which is Vicky Phelan set up and is part of, um, of the uh, victims, I suppose, um, and those affected by the cervical check scandal. And they met with Stephen Donnelly a couple of times last weekend um, for two hours, over two hours, um, and had meetings and all that jazz talking about the tribunal that he was setting up and why they don't support it and how they don't want it to be acrimonious and they want it to be supportive and all the reasons why it shouldn't go ahead. And he was meeting them all weekend and then it went ahead, because he'd signed it a week ago, it was went ahead by legislation that couldn't be turned back. Like all this, all these rules, like you're in power, you can ch like change the rules. Um, I know it doesn't work like that, but you know what I mean? You can make things work. But so he's gone ahead with the cervical check tribunal as is even following the consultation with the group who don't support it um, which is really 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 sad to see him wasting their time if it was going to go ahead anyway why are you doing these face to face meetings with them wasting their time Stephen Donnelly waste someone's time surely not Andrea surely this is a man at the top of his game with all of the expertise that one needs and not somebody uh, who can't, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be too mean to Stephen Donnelly, but I do find a kind of, I find it a, a kind of a something, um, just the, the, you know, when media training and practicing in the mirror goes so far that all you actually have left to the audience is that kind of layer at the top, like the presentation style. And then like, you just keep doing that. Do you know what I mean? 
it's yeah. it's kind of like there's a touch of Alan Murphy and there's a touch of it's just like this kind of thing. I mean, Andrea, of course we care. What we're going to do is we're going to talk to all the relevant stakeholders and their voices will be heard. And we will take that and we will act on that because that's what this government is trying to do. You know, that kind oh, of thing. You can totally be the health spokesperson. <laughs> <laughs> it's, so, it's so transparent though no it's just like when all there is is like um this is this authentic is yeah this, this is, is this is authentic thing. messaging that cuts through and i am a straight talker and i'm just trying to connect with you as a person and i'm going to tell you what i'm doing and you are going to understand that because this is the way i've been told to speak um but of course that doesn't really matter when you're kind of doing things wrong and you're full of shit. Uh, Andrea, I, civility, please. Sorry. Uh, my mother actually was listening the other day and then obviously I live with her and she's like, will you stop cursing on that podcast? It's <laughs> 40 years of age, being told to stop cursing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, next up is like even worse. Well, it's not a comparison. There's no worse or better. The mother and baby home survivors are being gaslighted left, right, gaslit or gaslighted? Gaslighted, I'd say, yeah. Uh, left, right and centre by the government. Uh, in many ways, um, there's been lots of exposés of emails that have been sent. One came from Fianna Fáil TD, Niall Collins, um, and he sent an email to someone basically saying that Sinn Féin were launching this paid advertising campaign on social media and to not listening to the misinformation that was coming and that they were trying to railroad it. Sinn Féin subsequently came out and were like, we haven't run any ads. What are you talking about? And the uh, Mega Work and the adoption group came out and they were like, there was three people that planned this uh, campaign of communication with TDs. The three of us sat down together, came up with the thing. We've done it before. And it has nothing to do with parties. We deal with all parties and no parties. So you're you're absolutely full of shit, uh, Fianna Falls, Niall Collins. Um, also, then Fianna Fáil TD John Lahart came out and was like, avoid the conspiracy theories, manipulating the vulnerable. Oh. Um, and I know you're staying away from the news. Sorry to bring it into your, into your life, <laughs> what these idiots are doing. So you are literally going, are you absolutely bananas the way you're approaching this when you have people who have been kept in the dark being uh, treated the way they've been treated and you're trying to reduce them down to a conspiracy theory to keep yourself from uh, looking bad essentially mm. um, I don't think it's a coincidence that the it, you know that it seems to be a lot of dudes uh patronizing a lot of very very smart women experts um like i don't i mean i don't think that's mm. a coincidence i think the language being used about like people having anxieties about things as if people need to calm down and um the kind of like patriarchal and patronizing tone that's been taken i mean obviously niall collins going off on some like random Trump rant on an email calling the concerns about the bill and the processes around it fake news. Like, I mean, who are you going to believe? Like Niall Collins 
you know, rando TD from a Fianna Fáil dynasty. Um, wasn't his like grandfather, I think was a Limerick TD and his uncle was a minister. And I think he had two uncles actually, didn't he? Uh, Jerry Collins, Michael Collins, all these kind of Limerick uh, Fianna Fáil people who just, whose offspring, you know, just happened to be the best people uh, for the job as well. It's it's just a complete coincidence and that's why they go into politics and get elected. Where is politics based on who's best for the job? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I just think it's like when you look at like Catherine O'Donnell, Maeve O'Rourke, you know, all these people um, saying, well, you know, this is our expert opinion on, on this. And then, you know, you people like Niall Collins going, oh, they're just actually making things up. It's like, no, dude. Uh, also, I was dismayed a little bit um, uh, during the week of just un- like this surprise. Social media is in bits, shocker. Um, but Michael G. Higgins signed the bill um, the other day, and instantly there was. And I un- like obviously you see the bill being signed, and you're absolutely right, and I get that. But he's stuck between a rock and a hard place because. He can either refer to the Supreme Court uh, with Article 26 uh, to see if it is unconstitutional. And the fact is, it probably isn't unconstitutional as an expert in constitutional law, I would say. (laughs) From what I have heard experts say is that it may not be unconstitutional, but it is uh, shit. Um, And if it does go to the Supreme Court, that means that it can't be challenged in the future. And what he did was he signed it, but he released a statement um, which was which said at the end of it that the president's decision to sign this legislation leaves it open to any citizen to challenge the provisions of the bill in the future. Now, if that is not the ultimate shade by Michael D. Higgins for the bill, like I cannot think of anything else. He couldn't have done anything more. And I think he was really clever. But to see people turn on Michael D. Higgins, who has been nothing short of uh, a campaigner for equality, for um, fairness, for women's rights, for um, the arts, for like he's literally he. That's who he is, and you, like to see his whole character being taken apart over one action. That uh, I just think is just how we react on social media so fast. I think mm. I find it really disturbing. I think what the media and the political kind of establishment is missing about this is that people know that this bill is very specific and relates to, you know, provisions in the 2004 Act. Like people know that. People know that the bill itself is not saying that it's sealing the archive for 30 years. But it's the bigger picture that's being missed. And while politicians kind of patronise people and well, actually, people about, you know, well, there's nothing about uh, that in this bill and blah, blah, blah. People, the public, rightly so, and the campaigners are looking at the bigger picture and how that was so poorly communicated and how we do have to um, change those processes and not keep falling back on this kind of secrecy culture and then just go, oh, well, it was actually other legislation. It's like, change it. Uh, also social media in bits is the LGB Alliance Ireland who have attempted to infiltrate the Irish LGBT community um, from London it seems so uh, there was a Twitter uh, set up um, looking to take out the T from the LGBT um, but from investigations I think uh, Noah Halpin spent €55 to track down where the IP address was coming from in London um, and there's been a 
really big kickback from uh, Irish LGBT community and um, that 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 turfism is not welcome in Ireland that it is an inclusive community that uh trans people have been there for all the campaigns that we've gone through and supported um, those and that they will be supported here so piss off uh, then another thing was this is a good thing so there is some good news um, there was a plan uh, supporting a victim's journey, a plan to help victims and vulnerable witnesses in sexual violence cases. It's republished by Minister for Justice Helen McEntee and will, for the first time, ensure victims are represented in the court when past sexual history is being examined. And this is a really good move in terms of this was set up initially after the Belfast trial because uh, it was obviously laid wide open what deficiencies there were in how sexual assault and um, sexual violence cases were being tried. So there is definitely um, a move towards trying to fix that and make it um, a more, a less traumatic experience, I suppose, for victims. Um, and then finally, in the State of the Nation this week, a young girl died alone in a tent um, the other day. And I think that just we've, we're reaching a, a huge number of homeless people who are dying on the street. There is no provisions being made to cope with our with the people who are living uh, without homes. And we're all going through a lockdown and a COVID journey. And that is not being represented with um, how we are supporting those people. Mm, this is a 31-year-old woman in, in, in Clondalk and I think like the sad thing that they think that maybe her body was there for, for a couple of days. I mean, it's just so horrific uh, how alone somebody could be in the world and all the more reason to reach out to people and for the government to really address uh, the housing and homelessness crisis. Okay, we are going to go to our county. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, this week's county is Kilkenny. And here are some Kilkenny facts. Yes. <laughs> like, wait till we get to my favorite bit of this. Okay, population 26,512, according to the 2016 census. Um, it's a medieval town and therefore follows that it's centered around a castle. Kilkenny Castle, to be precise. Um, Kilkenny is the anglicised version of the Irish Kilkanic, meaning cell or church of Canock or Canice. In the 19th century, the Kilkenny cats were a common simile for any conflict likely to ruin both combatants. In the later 20th century, the motive was reclaimed by Kilkenny people as a positive symbol of tenacity and fighting spirit. And the Cats is now the county name for the Kilkenny hurling team. Hurling is big in Kilkenny, I've figured out. Big down there. It's known as the Marble City because of its distinctive black marble. It is home to Kilkenny Cat Laughs Festival, the Kilkenny Arts Festival, Kilkenny Roots Festival. Remember festivals? Oh, swoon at a festival. Um, it is... Uh, obviously where the Kilkenny shop, which is the, at the forefront of promoting the finest Irish craft and design for over 50 years, 
um, which is Brill, Opaz, and also Smithix is brewed here. And it's one of the country's oldest breweries. But now, the story we've all been waiting for. One of the earliest trials for witchcraft was that of Kilkenny resident Alice Keitler um, and her maidservant Petronilla de Meath. Um, and it was instigated by the then Bishop of Ossory, Richard de Ledrade, de Ledrade in 1324. Now, this story is so bananas that it is like it's you would expect it to be made up. So she was the first recorded person condemned for witch, witchcraft in Ireland. She fled the country eventually, but her servant Petronilla was flogged and burned to death at the stake on the 3rd of November 1324. But how did it get to that point, you'll ask? Well, she was the only child of a Flemish family of merchants that settled in Ireland and she married four times. Her first husband was uh, a moneylender. Uh, the second husband was a moneylender. Oh, we have a pattern. Uh, <laughs> her third husband was a landholder. Um, and she, uh, then the fourth husband so was, it doesn't say. Anyway, her second husband and Keitler were briefly accused of killing her first husband. People were raging at her because she was lo- loaded and she was involved in money lending through her two husbands. When her fourth husband uh, fell ill, he expressed his suspicion that he was being poisoned. Um, and after his death, the children um, of her three previous husbands accused her of using poison and sorcery against their fathers and of f- favouring her firstborn son, William Outlaw. Now, in addition to all of this, like like this is madness, she and her followers were accused of denying the faith of the church and the Christ, cutting up animals to sacrifice to demons at crossroads, holding secret nocturnal meetings in churches to perform black magic and undermine and overpower the church, using sorcery and potions to control Christians, and possession of a familiar uh, Robin Artisan, a lesser demon of Satan, and the murder of her husband's. So she went on trial. Like, that is some rap sheet. <laughs> she went on trial. Now, I wonder if she was just like strong, independent woman, Beyonce style, and they were all just trying to frame her for this because she was getting her shit done and like... Yeah, I'm going to go with that. I feel like that's generally the case. Uh, so basically, the bishop wanted to uphold the laws of church and morality. So obviously, she probably wasn't up there with her four husbands. And when he... When her case was put to him, he wanted to address the larger project of addressing her witchcraft. So he tried to arrest her, but she loads of power for France. He didn't get arrested. The bishop kept trying and kept trying. And eventually they were accused of committing heresy, making love and hate potions to corrupt Christians, uh, engaging in a sexual affair with a demon, communing with demons, sacrificing to demons, etc., etc. And after loads of time, uh, her servant was tortured and confessed to witchcraft. Now, obviously, it looks like she was forced into it because uh, the testimony did implicate Keitler, but there was loads of questions around Petronella's uh, credibility, blah, blah. And then eventually, Keitler... Uh, used her powerful friends to delay it by a few weeks for 40 days. And in that time she fled and then Petronilla was flogged and burned. Wow. Very um, topical for the week of Samhain is all this talk of witchery. Yeah, that's why I thought I'd go deep on it. Yeah. And uh, it's quite a famous story. And uh, W.B. Yeats included her in his poem 1919. And 
Emma Donahue, famous of Room, wrote a short story called Looking for Petronilla. Fascinating. I didn't know Isn't any it? of that. I know, it's so interesting. One of my favourite gal pal stories originates in Kilkenny. Um, Eleanor Butler, the butlers of the castle, and uh, her servant, I believe, Sarah Ponsonby, um, caused turbo scandal in the late 1700s when they um, ran off together uh, to Wales and subsequently became known as the Ladies of Langwellen and uh, had an amazing gaffe in Langwellen in Wales and were like friends with Shelley and Wordsworth and Byron and stuff. Um, So there's loads of um, interesting, intriguing lives emerging from Kilkenny. Not to cast aspersions, but maybe Alice Keitler and Petronilla were also lesbian lovers, and that's why they were just raking up the husbands to for money lending. Uh, yes, let's go with that. That, that <laughs> I mean, history. <laughs> I'm on board with that. Obviously, um, I really like the direction this podcast is take uh, episode is taking today. Um, okay, so who better? Then to be our county rep for Kilkenny, then Rachel Collins, who is the editor of the Irish Times Weekend magazine and a proud Kilkenny woman. Here she is repping her county. My name is Rachel Collins and I'm the Kilkenny County Rep, even though I'm a terrible choice, really, as I'm from one of only about four non-GAA families in the entire county. Kilkenny, you see, is rightly known for its enormous success in hurling. We've won 36 All-Irelands, which is more than any other county, by the way. I have to mention that or I won't be allowed home. But hurling really is at the heart of the city and county. You'll see tiny kids everywhere who are barely able to walk, dragging hurls and slitters around behind them. The players are considered celebrities and, and matches punctuate the whole summer calendar and dominate conversations in every bar you might walk into. As someone from a family of blow-ins, the obsession with hurling always fascinated and mystified me somewhat. But the enthusiasm is infectious and you really can't knock something that brings so much joy to so many people, even if we do rub it in everyone's faces about how often we win. There is more to Kilkenny than hurling, though. Honestly, there is. Back in the 1600s, it was the first medieval capital of Ireland. And this is something that we like to boast about as well as the hurling. The city itself, it dates back to the 6th century. And despite what others might say about the status today, Kilkenny is still a city and woe betide anyone who tries to claim otherwise. Growing up in Kilkenny, I was surrounded by the most incredible history, but it's woven so seamlessly into the modern life of the city that I'm not sure I ever really noticed it until I moved away. There's Roth House, which is a perfectly preserved 16th century merchant's house, but we used to just use it as a landmark to meet our friends outside. Or there's Kilkenny Castle, a Norman fortification originally built by Strongbow in the 12th century, but we just saw the grounds as a place to kiss boys. Then there's the Butter Slip, which is a covered walkway underneath two houses where butter vendors would sell their wares in the 1600s. But we just admired it for the acoustics for the buskers or as a useful shortcut from High Street to Kieran Street. Of course, it's shameful, really, looking back, but I do now see it for the fascinating medieval city that it is. And it's just steeped in history that's so easy to discover on every street and cobbled laneway. 
There's a new trail called the Medieval Mile that showcases some of the best bits and it is really worth doing if you have a free afternoon in the city. But the thing I love most about Kilkenny is that it's such a lively, creative and cultural place. There's a vibrant community of artists and makers and artisans and craftspeople and musicians and food producers just all across the country. There's names that I think people would know around the world now, like Nicholas Moss Pottery, uh, Jerpoint Glass, this Kilkenny Design, Rudolph Helsel Jewellery. We've got the National Crafts Council in the Old Castle Stables. Um, just small towns and villages all around the county, like Thomastown, Inishdeeg and Bennisbridge. They're full of really interesting workshops and studios that you can visit. And it just gives the county a really unique identity. Of course, these days we have Cartoon Saloon, which is the animation and film studio. And that has brought a whole new generation of creatives from all around the world into the city. And it really gives the place just an interesting cosmopolitan vibe. The festivals in Kilkenny um, also inject loads of life and crack into the city. So in the summer, you'll see the Cat Laughs Comedy Festival. There's the Arts Festival every summer. There's Savour Kilkenny Food Festival. And then in November, there's Kilkenomics, which is a bizarre mix of comedy and economics. But there's just always so much going on. And even in the depths of winter, there's bars like Clears and the Hole in the Wall that are always putting on events and looking for new and creative ways to breathe life into the city. There's also really good food in Kilkenny. We have some great food producers like Goatsbridge Trout and Highbank Orchards. And then there's cafes like Aron, which makes the best sourdough bread or Cake Face, which will make you want to stuff your face with cakes. And we also have two Michelin starred restaurants, which is pretty good going for such a small place. We've got Campania in the city and then the Lady Helen out in Mount Juliet near Thomastown. Um, really, I'm just starting to wonder now why I ever moved to Dublin. From brewing to she beans to speakeasies to the sesh, what is the attraction of the hidden pub? Well, did you know that Kilkenny beer was brewed in St. Francis Abbey, which was the oldest operating brewery in Ireland until it closed in 2013? No, I did not. Well, it's not brewed in Guinness in Dublin, but it did get us thinking about ancient beer and where people drink it. And also, Drake is a big fan of Kilkenny beer. <laughs> Just FYI. So that's um, a tenuous enough link, Andrea. Where do we go from here? Well, we are going to the humble Sheebeen. Everyone knows Irish people are big fans of the sneaky set and the Shebeen has been has made its return in a pandemic 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 era Ireland as pubs were shut down. Obviously not we are not glorifying or recommending this, but I am intrigued by some examples of Shebeenery uh, that have been going on in Ireland recently. There was a fully kitted out bar in a thigh in Kildare raided there the other week with a 70-inch TV, full-size pool table several beer taps, coolers, kegs, and my favourite part of this, a smoking section, despite the fact that the bar itself is already already pretty illegal, uh, but fair play for keeping that bit legit. The Vintners Federation, who are obviously raging at the moment, um, say they've been alerted to up to 500 she beans across the country. That's over 15 per county. If Can I ask what has to, what has to happen for it to be a she bean? Like what is it? 
Like I have loads of friends who's converted their like sheds down the back into little mini pubs. Is that achieving? No. So I I think you have to be selling alcohol and there have to be other people there. Yeah, because loads of people have like little bar sheds now. Um, So other she beans have been raided in Leash, in Westmeath and Meath uh, before that, a thigh bust. Um, two of those had four kegs hooked up ready to pour and 15 to 20 bottles of spirits on the wall. I'm very into the level of decor uh, that's going on. Havana Club signs and Guinness bunting and the likes. If you're going to do it. Uh, but while we were researching this topic, we were actually really particularly drawn to an article um, that Frank McNally wrote uh, last year about the connection between Irish shebeans and the South African shebean culture. Um, and Frank is the chief writer of an Irishman's Diary column in the Irish Times and a column that has been running, I think, for around 100 years. Um, so that makes Frank 125, maybe. <laughs> Just feels like that. <laughs> Uh, Frank's also the author of The Xenophobe's Guide to the Irish. Frank, hello. Thanks for joining us. Not at all. Yeah. Um, What what reminded me, uh, I'm I'm jumping the gun here, maybe this is your question. What reminded me of this was, um, but this time last year, I don't know if either of you are rugby fans, but when South Africa won the Rugby World Cup, Mm. they were captained for the first time by by a black player, which is a huge thing. And as you know, traditionally, as you may know, traditionally, um, rugby in South Africa was very much a white preserve and it was very, it was notorious in this country um, as... Recently, well, it's not recent now, I guess, but in 1980, there was an infamous um, Irish rugby tour of South Africa, which um, and major protests uh, about it because the sport, like the rest of South Africa, then was was apartheid, and eventually that changed, and gradually, you know, they've they, they've reformed it, and then making making um, they've been black players playing on the team for years, but this was a black captain. And he made a superbly dignified speech at the end. In fact, it was notable. He was more modest in in victory than the English team were in defeat. It has to be said. He made a he made a lovely dignified speech about remembering all the people at home, um, including the poorest of the poor in South Africa, to whom this this victory meant so much. And he specifically name checked. He name checked the homeless people who would have been watching it in various places. And he mentioned all the people in the taverns and in the shabines. And I thought. Wow, yeah, I'd kind of forgotten this, but shebeans are a huge part of South African culture, and obviously it came from Ireland originally, presumably with with uh, some of our emigrants, either um, unwilling emigrants, maybe maybe some of our convicts that could ship down that way, or p- probably British uh, Irishmen fighting in British in in the British Army. But but shebeans have been a big, uh, almost as big a part of South African history as they have of Irish, and in fact. As I, as I suggested in the column, South Africa is probably now the home of the Shabin, at least before COVID nineteen, which may have <laughs> which may have brought it back home in another in another sense to Ireland. Why were they so popular in South Africa? Well, for 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 the best part of the twentieth century, they were the only place. A, they were the only place that black people could drink, as far as I know. I think they were specifically banned from drinking alcohol in public places from after about. The 1920s, and then when the the full scale apartheid system came in in 1948, um, pretty much shebeens were the only place places that um, that black people could gather. So not only was it a social thing, it was a place where you could drink and and dance. They became sort of community clubs, and that they also took on political overtone because they were a place where people would meet and discuss 
argue over over politics. As such, they might have featured in a film. I don't know if you you remember a film from it was the late eighties called Cry Freedom by uh, mm. Richard Attenborough. Uh, Denzel Washington played the part of Steve Biko. Was it Denzel Washington? I think it was. And um, played. Steve Biko, and part of that was he re-educates this um, white newspaper man called Donald Woods about the realities of of life in Black Africa. Woods had taken a dim view of Biko and his likes. He thought that they were dangerous extremists, and um, you know he preferred dealing with the moderates. But but um, Biko brings him on a tour of the townships where so many uh, so many Black Africans were condemned to live, and there's a scene in a in a Shibin where he um, introduces him to some of the realities of life. One of the subtexts of that was interesting. Well, well, there's two interesting things. First of all, these Shibins were always, um, so far as I know, they were always run by women. That, w- that went back to a time when, because they would brew their own drink. It was, it was homemade drink often, and that was considered women's work once. Um, so the brewer would operate the Shibin and they became known rather grandly as Shibin Queens um, and, and that became a phenomenon. It was like the South African version of the Bannon, the Bannon Tea. Um, she was a powerful figure. There's also a suggestion in that film, I'd forgotten this, but um, uh, at one point Woods asks Biko or he asks somebody else in the, in the pub, do, do the Shibin, are, are the Shibin Queens not all informers? Obviously that was a thing because there were political meetings in the uh, in so many of these places. Some of them, undoubtedly, I'm sure it happened here too, um, because they they would be eavesdropping in every conversation. Some of them, no doubt, were passing on information. Uh, that, but that's a, a subtext to it. Anyway, the point was that it became it was a huge part of of black culture. I think these days they're they're still called shibins. I think most of them are probably legal now. Now, and if anything, it's gone. I believe I haven't been to South Africa, but I believe um, it's 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 become a gentrified thing where you know you you get you can do shibin tours in Johannesburg and Cape Town and the likes, and they bring you to some of the, the places that used to be famous for being illegal and they're perfectly legal today, but they still trade on the on the glamour of having once been an an, an illicit thing. Mm. This is the like depressing inevitability of what is illicit being commodified, <laughs> you know, from yeah, like, you know, did, multi-million. Did Didn't Jay Bork have a pub there a few years ago called um, Shibin Chic? Chic, Chic, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> like, you know, from the kind of speakeasies, you end up with these like multi-million dollar kind of speakeasy fit outs in Hong Kong or very commodified Duke joint you know, phony Duke joints in New Orleans or stuff like that. But from an Irish perspective, because really, I think you are right, like the South Africa, the Shebeen is a very live and embedded uh, entity in in the kind of the social, socialising landscape, I suppose. But what's your understanding of the history of the Shebeen in Ireland? Like, has it primarily been a rural thing going way, way, way back? Yeah, I'm sure it was. I, I I remember this is not about shebeens and tickers, but drink uh, illegal drink. I remember reading a statistic which was mind blowing that in the middle of the 19th century, in the peninsula of Inishon alone, you know that's the bit of Donegal, the, the top of Donegal, that bit yeah. like on Derry, were an estimated 10,000 illegal um, distilleries. In other words, like. Pachin makers, ten thousand in in a show, and wouldn't be that many people living possibly in in, in a show now. But so so it was a huge thing once, and I presume a lot of that was then a lot of that stuff was served in people's 
houses, and those houses by definition then became shabines. You know, we uh, one of our great um, euphemisms, even though you don't, don't think about it, like the, the the official name for a pub is a public house, and that's what we call it, public house. So by you know by uh, definition, there are private <laughs> private houses serving drink, and if they charge for it as well, I think that that makes them by definition a shabine. The word, by the way, is interesting. The original word, I only found this out today when I went looking. If you go back to the famous, um, uh, what's his name, Deneen's English-Irish Dictionary, which is everything in it, the original Shabin was, uh, it was like a Krushkin, you know the Krushkin, the little brimming jug that the songs mm-hmm. were, were written about? The Shabin was a mug, and originally it was a, it was a mug used to, um, to measure grain. Uh, there were different measurements at different times, but... It was also used to levy a tax at one point, a tax in kinds. So if you were bringing your grain to the market, somebody would uh, would take a scoop. We'll use one of these mugs, take a scoop out of the grain. That was the toll you paid, the tax you paid for access to the market or whatever. And from that, the word came to be applied to a mug full of anything, and then it became a mug full of drink. And I think it spent a while, she being spent a while meaning just weak homemade beer or bad beer in general and then it gradually got applied to the the places where that would be would be served so eventually i think by you know certainly by the 20th century it was it was in the oxford it had made its way into the oxford english dictionary by a long circuitous route does it surprise you frank that she beans have re-emerged in lockdown you know not at all i i i remember i think i mentioned that column as well i remember sitting in milltown malby some years ago um uh, at the Willie Clancy Summer School, I'm not um, I'm not a musician, but I used to I used to go down there for the festival because where all the great traditional musicians played, and you could eavesdrop. Some some of the bars were so small they didn't fit an audience, but you know you could usually prop yourself in at the bar and and listen to the. And I remember on one of the occasions, somebody it seemed to me every time I went down there was a there was the pubs where the number of pubs in the town were shrinking, but like every, every, every possible venue would be pressed into action. And I remember overhearing one of the years, uh, a conversation between somebody who was asking about such and such a pub who had recently closed. And I think it was because the man had died and the, uh, the widow uh, couldn't, couldn't, um, didn't need the, the hassle of keeping on the license. And they were discussing plans to meet there occasionally. I mean, maybe they were going to suggest this. Maybe maybe we could go over and meet there and have a, a session by which they meant a music session, but with a with a few drinks for old time's sake. And and he said, you know, like a kind of she bean. So it was it was bubbling under even then. But obviously with COVID now, it's 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 been given a whole new life, uh, a whole a, 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 a whole new lease lease of life. I wasn't aware of. It. Needless to say, I'm not attending any of these parties. But if the Irish Times and other sources are to be believed, they are now a major factor or have been a major factor in the um, continued spread of COVID because people have people have moved back. It's it's like the whole concept has gone back to its roots. You have private private houses serving as um serving as places, drinking establishments. Some of them very elaborately kitted out, as you suggested, with, you know, rows of kegs. It's funny, I mentioned, you, you reminded me at the start uh, when you were talking about I don't know what I don't know what it was, but when you're talking about Kilkenny, I, I, you reminded me of a, a pub I used very occasionally drink in in Monaghan, which had every it had every uh, aspect of a shebeen, except that I think it had a license. It was a little place called it was in a village called Drum, and people anybody who's ever been in Anna McCurry might have might have known it. Certainly, yes. up till about ten years ago, 
because it only ever opened, I think it only ever opened on Saturday night and for about two hours on Saturday night. It was very restricted opening hours. And it was like something out of the Wild West. There was like whiskey poured by the hand from, you know, bottles and no such thing as the, there were no kegs either. It was just bottled beer. There were, there was improvised furniture, benches. I think maybe the counter might well have been like a, 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 uh, a plank of wood or something like that. It was, it was all that basic. It felt like you were doing something illegal there, but apparently you weren't, disappointingly, because the man did have a license. I think the joke was, he was, a, he was an old Protestant gentleman, um, and the joke was that he didn't approve of drinking, but he did want to hold on to the license, and so he kept it he kept it open uh, at, a bare, at a bare minimum. Unfortunately, it's long gone. It's gone at least. I was there some... The last time I passed through the village of Drum, it looked like it, it had never been opened. It, it already looked like something from a century ago. But I know I was in it as recently as the certainly the late 1990s, if not the early part of this century. Mm. You're a seasoned and experienced uh, documenter of Irish culture and life. Uh, let's <laughs> let's say that. <laughs> what do you think um, the impact of the pandemic is going to be on Irish socialising because there is a sadness that I sense throughout this period that the pursuit of divilment is so restricted. Obviously, we know the reasons for that and nobody should supersede it if they want, you know, just for, for having a laugh or whatever. But that is an intrinsic driver, I feel, in the Irish psyche. How do you think this is going to knock that off course, change that or perhaps allow it to reemerge in other more illicit ways? God, that's a big question. I mean, listen, if we if we had a vaccine next week and, you know, life was somehow returned to normal by Christmas, I think we would shrug this all off and it would be forgotten about within months. We 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 would all go mad for a while celebrating. And um, you know, I'm sure I'm sure some businesses will never recover. That's a sad point of it. The the, the problem is we don't know how long it's gonna be. And another I mean it's definitely it's gonna have perf- it is going to have some profound changes in the way we do things like working from home. That was something I did already, but I know for some people, for a lot of people, that that has been a revelation and they may never go back to to working in, in offices together. So we'd be working out like the ramifications of that for years. I, I don't know. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just too big a question because we don't know whether we have another, you know, three months, six months, a year of this. We're all hoping it's shorter rather than longer. Um, the, long, the longer it goes on, the more profound the changes will be. Um, but it is kind of interesting that one of those, it, it, it is, it's bad. I, I suppose we've got to, we've got to agree being responsible people that, bad, that people are, people are um, drinking and, and, uh, and hosting parties in, in their homes when they're not supposed to be. But it is kind of interesting that we are reverting to type and reverting to a kind of um, an ancient institution in, you know, in reopening and reopening she beans which had been thought to be long condemned to to the dustbin of history mm, there's definitely it's a, one of a number of echoes i suppose um in in the pandemic uh that is really kind of coming to light again frank mcnally thanks so much for joining us to talk she beans um, <laughs> thanks for having me What's getting in the sea this week, Andrea? Oh, my God. This week, it is Qatar Airways. um, And it was uncovered. Now, it happened in October. But um, 
a baby was found in the airport abandoned in Doha and the planes that were in the vicinity that had been boarded that with that had access to that area um were grounded and one of the planes that was going to Sydney um, all the female passengers were made to get their passports and to get off the plane and taken onto uh, an ambulance where they were had to go invasive examinations um, to see if they'd recently given birth. Um, so every single woman on the pl- planes. Now, the, that has only come to light in Australia at the moment. Um, and they think that there was more planes involved, but they don't. They're only kind of looking into it now. But... I really think that there is a lot of other ways to figure out if somebody has given birth and maybe that invasive examinations are definitely not the way to go, Qatar Airways. Um, Now, Human Rights Watch have come out against it and I've said that this is atrocious and uh, the women who who underwent the procedure have been coming out suffering with trauma and um, basically saying they were crying and they were told nothing. They were just saying that there was a baby abandoned and they had to find out who the mother was. So obviously there's a lot of questions um, and obviously Doha is not exactly well known for women's rights um, etc. So overall for Qatar Airways to take that approach we have to say that they are getting in the sea. And now it's bananas. <laughs> oh my god it is bananas. So the last few weeks something's changed uh, and it's been Finnegal's communications strategy. Um, and I kind of think there's two ways of winning in politics at the moment. Now, I'm sure there's loads of others, but there's a very clear definition of peop- of parties who are winning. There's obviously the absolute ramshackle approach uh, by Trump and the UK Brexit team to just actually spread misinformation, confuse everyone, throw everything at it. Everyone's going, what the fuck is going on? Wreck the world and wreck the buzz apart from your own inner circle. Then on the other side of things, you have... Jacinda in New Zealand, who is basically just gets shit done, puts her pedal to the metal, uh, is honest, is open, is saying, I'm going to represent everyone who lives in New Zealand. Um, and just basically puts her head down and get the job done. Um, and she came out in a huge, um, in a huge victory in the recent elections. And it feels like Finnegal have decided that they're actually going to follow the other approach, which is just undermining people, doing loads of misinformation, putting out these absolutely scarlet videos, um, putting the Tanisha on, well, I'm sure he did it himself, on uh, shows saying one thing, undermining everyone, and then calling out like, the fact that he's been like, we should follow Belgium. Belgium are in crisis now with COVID. And like, look how uh, the New Zealand or somewhere else. Anyway, basically, it just is a, a bizarre strategy. And it really is quite depressing to see them going down that route. I just think the whole thing is bananas. Mm. I kind of feel like they don't really know what they're at because they have this dual calm strategy if it is a strategy where it's like one hand you have nationwide Fine Gael, where they're just doing all these videos going around the place and I have wasted like two minutes today watching some random senator make 
a latte in a cafe in Blackwell was something to do with the wage subsidy or something. And then on the other hand, you have the ridiculous like attack ads and obviously um, Leo Varadkar's general disposition, etc. Can we have a moment for the headline in the business post this week? What? On the front page that Leo coming back into power uh, in 2022 would be a thing of poetry. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 can't, I, oh just, I don't God. even know what to say about that. But yeah, it's weird, isn't it? I mean, I recently was, uh, I don't know, tweeted something about how like the political parties of the day like tend to internalise what the dominant kind of comms is in the discourse like New Labour did it with advertising and I feel like Fine Gael are doing it with tech culture, startup culture and influencer culture. Loads of people slagged me off, centrist bros, for using big words because um, people aren't allowed to actually think intellectually about communicating political messages, um, especially if you're some kind of left-wing shill like me. And a woman. And a woman to boot. To boot. But, but I do think that is what it is. You know, they are internalizing this culture that um, is kind of meaningless, very superficial, um, has this kind of defense mechanism of just being nice, quote unquote. So therefore you can't criticize it. Are you um, joking? And Did then, no, no, but I'm just saying that that's what it has, has in it, like inherent to its kind of the comms of it and the aesthetic of it um and then so that's kind of used as as leverage uh which is kind of gaslighting I mean it's classic neoliberal stuff you know you kind of infantilize people you pump out this really inane messaging that masquerades as something benign without without tackling the fundamental issues uh that lie underneath things and and, and indeed the fundamental inequalities in society and you just go we're doing all this great stuff and you and everybody all of the politicians become these kind of presenters um as you know they're presenting uh the communication of the policy as opposed to actually addressing the issues uh, in society so it, it, they're very much internalizing that kind of culture that exists um so, you know particularly almost like an instagram type culture where you know, you're you're kind of saying nothing, and 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 it's almost like Finnegal spawn con for themselves. You know, it's a very curious thing. That's what they're doing, whether they're doing it subconsciously or not. But you know, um, just don't go on about that on Twitter because all the centrist bros will will come after you and be like, "I don't even know what you're saying." It's like, oh, I'm sorry for being smart. <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. uh, so. <laughs> So okay, that was that was fine. Okay, um, let's, oh, it's bananas. It's bananas. <laughs> Andrea, tell me about your fave bits. Uh, my fave bits. I was over the moon when the update to the gender disparity data report on Radio Play came out. And when it in, in when it initially came out, it wasn't a great story. Like I think. 10% of radio was like, that's actually a figure I just made up out of my mind. Basically 10% of music on the radio was women and the rest was men. And now it's way more, um, which is so good. And like stations have been making such an effort mm, apart from really today FM, but, uh, two FM have gone up like 35%. It's just great. And down to loads of great work, uh, by the likes of, um, 
Linda Coogan Byrne, uh, Women in Harmony, um, Women Making Great Music, um, go on, The Irish Manaw on the radio. Uh, my second fave bit is a book that I'm nearly finished. Oh my God, I'm actually reading at the moment. It's such a joy. Um, I started an MS readathon that starts in November, but I'm getting a head start. And uh, it actually is the perfect reason for if you are one of those people who scrolls and suddenly three hours are gone and you have you could have read a whole book in that time, this actually makes you answerable. So I would definitely say sign up if you're looking for some uh, some thing to make you do it, pressure, um, but also to raise money for a very worthy cause. But I'm reading Less Is More by Jason Hickel, and it's absolutely brilliant. Um, and myself and Saoirse McHugh were talking about it. She's just finished it. And it is just a really good book to get in your head of how it's a really easy to read how capitalism works and uh, where it came from and what it's doing and how we, and there's like it's, Extinction Rebellion uh, introed it, so it's really focusing on what we're plunging from the earth and for what reasons, um, and how long that can go on, and if capitalism is continuous, blah blah blah. That's we all know all that shit, but it's really good for getting a basis in that. More uh, maybe lightweight is the Return of Saved by the Bell with some of the uh, um, original characters and actors are in it. It is coming back somewhere. I saw it somewhere, but yeah, it's coming back in a different form, but it's like the new, more woke, modern Saved by the Bell, which I'm living for. But Zach is in it, and Lisa isn't because of her mental health, and they didn't make uh, space for her, But which is a problem. But the rest of them are in it. And then finally, my last favorite bit, Cam with Horses. It's one of my favorite films, and I hate dark uh, films. Um, Bram Stoker doing this amazing uh immersive theatre thing that you do in your bed and I said I couldn't do it because I can't do dark things I'm only like love and light and saved by the bell and like pick a mix shit um so I was like sorry it's I can't I'm gonna like put that in my headspace but Camel Horses is a really dark film but it's absolutely brilliant and it's now on Netflix and I would urge everyone to watch it and they are all my fave bits. What are yours, Emma? So um, they were all fantastic. Um, my fave bits this week, I just finished the other day Inner City Pressure by Dan Hancocks, which is a kind of a social history of grime. But as, a lo- as well as the music, you don't have to be into grime or anything like that. Um, if you're not, uh, it's still a really brilliant kind of... Um, assessment of what happened in East London kind of socially and politically, economically uh, in the kind of early 2000s and the gentrification and the impact on the communities there. It's really, really great. So I'd recommend it to anyone who's into kind of urbanism or gentrification theory or indeed music. Uh, Really enjoyed it. It it covers a lot of bases. It's a great book. Speaking of music, my other favourite is Nilo's debut album, All the Leaves Are Falling, is out on October 30th. That's his Friday. Um, he is a great artist. So uh, listen to that or buy that often uh, when the weekend comes around. And as you mentioned, Andrea, my other fave bit uh, is Bram Stoker Festival and specifically Eternal, which is the spooky and scary immersive audio experience um, that they're running daily 
at five, six, seven, eight, and nine o'clock. And I'm very excited about it. I do love a bit of a fright. And basically it's just like 20 minute immersive experience where you lie in bed and um, I don't know, it goes into mad shit like the quandary of eternal life. And uh, basically it's like a horror film for your ears. Um, and like I'm really afraid of it, but maybe I should do it. Do you yeah, think I, I, feel, I think it's a vibe. It's it's like if you want to do something spooky this Halloween or if you and your buddies want to do it at the same time or whatever and then talk about it afterwards, go to bramstokerfestival.com. The event is called Eternal and it's five euro a ticket and you get a 20 minute um, wild ride, let's say. But they've so much deadly stuff going on this weekend and fair play to them for our favorite word pivoting in these times oh, fucking no <laughs> no the pivot ban but you know what's good though it, um obviously a lot of people are super worn out and bored of kind of the panel talks and the interviews and all that kind of stuff i do like that bram stoker are doing inventive things that are more immersive that are okay maybe it's online or digital or audio or whatever but it's more than just Look you know yeah, looking at his aim, basically. So check that out. And those are our fave bits. This They're podcast good. is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for a soundtrack. And Sarah Fox did all of our design. You can find links to all our social... No, absolutely not. Banned. <laughs> you can find links to all our socials on our website that hasn't been updated in about 100 years. <laughs> um, and if you've enjoyed listening, let us know, or better yet, give us a sweet review that we... Like, they're absolutely so funny. Uh, but we'd lo- we do like them. If you've... What am I talking about? If you have any suggestions for subjects you'd like us to look at for an episode, drop us a mail or DM. Or just uh, shout at us in the street. I always enjoy yeah. that. Wear your totes and, you know, spread the word on Twitter and Instagram if you're digging the shit because, you know, it's all well and good us putting stuff on our socials, but it's your socials that are more important. (laughs) (laughs) Is that actually true? Yeah, it's oh, like okay. we just keep putting out stuff on our socials, but like if we want new new friends, I know nothing. I love new friends. friends. I know nothing about um, promoting this podcast or um, reach. I'm 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 not I'm not very good at reach. Reaches and bits. Um. Anyway, well, we'll have a marketing meeting after, will we? <laughs> <laughs> so this week's tuna chicken roll is. It's now it's more of a chill song, which will probably be shocking if you've listened to any of my chin chicken rolls. But I suppose just where we are right now, it felt right. It's very a vibe. It's still a bop. It's still a tuna. Um, so it's three days by Rye. Woohoo! I've been Una Malali. I've been Andrea Oren. This has been United Ireland, and that was Kill Kenny. Thief with a mango glove.
Yeah. 